welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellero. This week, my guest is astronomy professor Emily Levesque. Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, for the listeners, Dr. Emily Levesque is a professor at the University of Washington's astronomy department. Her research program is focused on improving our overall understanding of how massive stars evolve and die. Her first popular science book just published, August 4th, I think, is The Last Stargazers. I can't wait to read it. It shares the tales and experiences of astronomical observing. She received her bachelor's degrees in physics from MIT and PhD in astronomy from the University of Hawaii. Very cool. (laughs) As with all astronomers, I ask, first question out of the gate is, how did you get interested in astronomy? I, um, I'm one of those people that got interested in astronomy from a really young age. Um, when I was two years old, um, Halley's Comet made its last close flyby of Earth, and my whole family went out into our backyard to observe it. I have a big brother who was studying it for a school project, and according to my parents, I was just absolutely mesmerized looking up at this comet. And after then, people would ask what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I would say, oh, I want to be a ballerina or an astronomer, or I want to be a firefighter or an astronomer, or a violinist or an astronomer, and astronomer just stuck. So I really did get interested incredibly young just by seeing how cool the sky looked. Special events in the sky can influence people for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. I remember going to see the solar eclipse in 2017 and seeing how many people were just enraptured by it. So hopefully that was a big event igniting people's interest in the sky. Yeah, I had one woman astronomer on who lived in Canada, and it was very dark skies, and she would go out at night with friends and lay on the grass and look up at the stars. Boy, that'll do it to you, looking at the Milky Way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So who are your science heroes? Oh, who are my science heroes? I mean, especially as an astronomer who just wrote a popular science book, Carl Sagan has to be one of them because he was so good at sort of infectious enthusiasm and getting the public interested in the nuts and bolts of science and also why science matters and just communicating why things like studying the way stars work are worthy of our time and attention. Um, I think another science hero would be Vera Rubin. So she is the woman who discovered dark matter. I learned a lot about her while writing The Last Stargazers because she's famous for discovering dark matter. She was also one of the first women to observe at a major telescope under her own name rather than listed as someone's listed as a man's assistant or something like that. And the whole story of how she came into the field and then just the fact that her research created a subfield is just so fascinating. Did you run across any uh, pushback as a woman pursuing a doctorate in astronomy? I've been really fortunate in that I've had really supportive family, friends, colleagues. For the vast majority of my interactions, the fact that I'm a woman has mattered not at all. I've just been a scientist. Um, I don't think any woman in any field gets by with no pushback, but it's been nice to see support against the pushback. I think I think the hardest stuff for me are the interactions that are ambiguous. And I think anyone dealing with sexism or racism or anything like this will say, 
oh, it's mostly confusing if somebody's being a jerk and you don't know if it's because that's the way they are or if it's because of your mm-hmm. identity or something else that's your fault. And this is this is another thing I write about in the book that you almost wish a sign could flash saying this person is being sexist and it's because you're a woman and you can scream and accuse and, you know, solve the problem that way. And it's a lot more insidious these days. Um, I have colleagues who've dealt with very serious struggles and it's a area where we have a long way to go, but I've been very fortunate to have a lot of support in my career so far. If you have a supportive and gracious thesis advisor, that really helps. I write about one of my research advisors throughout the last Stargazers, Phil Massey, and he was just a wonderful mentor and role model, and he's now become a good colleague and friend. And I think it was another case of gender never entered into the discussion. It was all about the science that we could do and how I could grow as a scientist, which was just so great. I noticed in your bio that from 2010 to 2015, you were a postdoc at the University of Colorado up in Boulder, not far from me. Yeah. It's very cool. Oh, it's a wonderful place to live. Was uh, the night sky suitable up there? Because I know where I live, the night sky is not so great. It's okay. I mean, we actually don't have very many professional observatories in Colorado. We tend to build them farther to the southwest where we get very clear weather, as beautiful as the weather in Colorado is, where you get very clear, dry nights. But I mean, stargazing, just if you get a little north of Boulder, like go north on 36 until you get to darker areas, it's just beautiful to be able to see that much of the sky. So what was your postdoc about? I was at Boulder under two postdoctoral fellowships. Um, They're actually both administered by NASA, um, the Einstein Fellowship and the Hubble Fellowship. And they're both specifically aimed at answering some of NASA's core questions about the universe. So I was there studying, at first, dying massive stars. So these are stars more massive than our sun that will die and produce supernovae. And I was specifically looking at stars that die as a supernova, but also produce this weird flash of gamma rays that we still don't fully understand. I had done my thesis on these events, which we call gamma ray bursts, and I was curious about what their environment, so where these stars were born and evolved, had to do with how they died. And from there at Boulder, I started carrying my research into things like studying these galaxies in the ultraviolet, which is a huge specialty of the University of Colorado Boulder Astronomy Department, and starting to study the late stages of massive stars more, which is kind of my overarching interest. But those fellowships meant I could really kind of chase the science I found interesting and have some creativity and flexibility in my research, which was wonderful. So that's where you got interested in massive stars. I actually started interested in massive stars. My first research projects in as an undergraduate were focused on massive stars and on how these stars die. So that's been that's been my constant scientific interest. Many people don't have a good feel about how our sun compares to other stars in terms of size and mass. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah. So in astronomy, we think about stars very much in terms of mass because how much mass they're born with really dictates the kind of life they'll lead. So our sun is 
a fairly typical star. Um, we tend to use it as a frame of reference. So we'll describe something as being twice the mass of the sun or 10 times the mass of the sun or that sort of thing. But our sun, we think, is around sort of early middle age in its life. Its core is fusing hydrogen into helium. Um, we think in total, our sun is going to live around, you know, 10 billion with a B years. And the reason and I'm interested about five in five billion yeah, into that, right? We're about four and a half, five billion into that now, right? And the stars that I'm interested in are 10, 20, 30 times as massive as our sun. Because of that, they fuse hydrogen into helium through different mechanisms and they sort of rip through their energy sources much quicker. So those stars will live maybe 10 million with an M years. And those stars will eventually sort of run out of fuel in their cores that helps them to sort of counteract the inward press of the star's own gravity. So these are the stars whose cores will collapse. You get this wonderful rebound shock as the outer layers of the star tumble down and bounce off that core. And then in their death, they create a supernova. So How big does that the star was the step I was interested in. Yeah. Um, we think that think the cutoff... Our sun's not big enough. Our sun is not going to go supernova, which is, I think, something that disappoints people it's sometimes. Heartwarming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we are, at, we think the cutoff is right around eight times as massive as our sun or more. So around eight times the mass of our sun is the sweet spot for when we think a star will produce a supernova when it dies. Do all massive stars end up as supernovas? Maybe. We, this is a really interesting question, actually, because I mentioned that collapsing core that the outer layers then bounce off of. And sometimes that collapsing core will make what's called a neutron star. So this sort of weird leftover husk of a star that's supported by principles of quantum physics. If the core is even more massive, it'll actually collapse into a black hole. And something we're curious about right now is whether the stars whose cores collapse into black holes still make some kind of supernova event or whether they just kind of like wink out and disappear. Um, I have colleagues that think they might have found an example of a disappearing star and we're looking for more of these. So it's a really interesting puzzle as to, you know, a different way that these stars could end their lives. What is it about a massive star that causes it to burn out faster? It has to do with the rate at which they'll fuse atoms in their cores. So just like our sun, these stars will start out fusing hydrogen into helium, but the method by which they fuse hydrogen happens much faster because the core of the star is a lot hotter and a lot denser. You're just packing more mass into a tiny area. Is that because area. of the gravity of the, of the star being more it, massive? It's, it's directly related to the mass of the star, exactly. So they'll fuse hydrogen into helium very quickly, and then they'll fuse helium into carbon. And for our sun, it will stop after fusing helium into carbon because the core of our sun never gets hot or dense enough to fuse carbon. For a massive star, that's not true. So it'll keep going. It'll fuse carbon and then oxygen and on and on. And it is able to sort of use the stuff left over from the previous fusion process as fuel. And this works great until the star tries to fuse iron because fusing hydrogen or helium or carbon produces energy. But if you want to fuse iron, you need to take energy. So now that energy balance between fusion and gravity is destroyed. And that's ultimately what kills the star. So is our sun a second generation star in the galaxy? I mean, oh, did our solar system form from heavy metals that were blown into the interstellar medium through first-generation supernovas? Is that right? Yes. 
Exactly. Yes. So this is the whole idea of we're all made from star stuff. Our sun was born out of interstellar gas and dust that had been, we call it enriched from previous generations of stars that had died a supernovae, hurled their material out into just interstellar space and added those chemical riches to the material that then was used to make a new generation of stars. So our sun formed out of that. And then we formed out of the disk around our sun, but we are benefiting and we're all here thanks to the chemical processes that happen in massive stars and in supernovae. So that iron in your blood and that calcium in your bones was once inside and formed in a star. Yep. A lot of people don't really realize that. That's very interesting. It's a very fun scientific result. Uh, I wanted to ask you about massive stars compared to the sun. What are they called? There's some interesting names for them. Oh, yes. So the types of stars that I specialize in are called red supergiants. And the confusing thing, and even some astronomers will mix this up, is that one day when our sun ages, it will puff up and cool off and become something called a red giant. And that distinction between red giant and red supergiant, it's a matter of half a word, but it makes a huge difference in terms of the type of star we're talking about. So when we say red supergiant, we mean a really massive star that's evolved sort of to the later stages of its life, that's cooled off, that's gotten enormous. But we have start off as a type O blue? Um, It would have started out as a main sequence massive star. So we call stars Mm -hmm. that are still fusing hydrogen main sequence stars. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we would call it an O star or a B star. So these are the very hottest kind of classifications for different stellar types. And there, we just use that classification system. But once these stars have aged, they start to get descriptive names like red supergiant or yellow supergiant. Um, sometimes we'll name them after people who studied certain types of stars. There's stars called wolf A stars, named for the people who studied them that are hot stars very late in their lives. They're not hot because they're young. They're hot because their outer layers have been stripped off. So our, our naming schemes in astronomy are also always something of a mixed bag. They'll be descriptive or they're named after a person or mm. an old classification system that we've kind yeah. of hauled along with us into today. All right. Well, we're going to have to take a short break. There's plenty more to talk about. I want to ask you some more technical questions about stars when we get back. But first, we have to take a short commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with astronomy professor Emily Vivek. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. 
To learn more, visit linode.com slash BGM. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com forward slash BGM. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with astronomy professor Emily Levesque. So, uh, as I recall from my astronomy studies, a significant fraction of the stars in the galaxy are binaries. Yes. Does anything interesting happen when those binaries are massive? Yes. So, binaries are actually a fascinating piece of the puzzle when we talk about how massive stars work. And it's something that my research students here at the University of Washington are working on. If two massive stars are in a binary and close enough to one another that they interact, so their gravity affects one another and one will sort of pull mass off of another, it can really change how the stars' lives go. It can change the type of supernova that they make. It can change how much mass one star or the other has. It can even at some level affect how long they live or what happens to them during their lifetimes. Does it result in any interesting radiation like gamma rays or is that reserved for the supernova? It can sometimes result in X-rays. So there's a type of binary called a high-mass X-ray binary. And this will be when you have something like a black hole, which so that would be the more massive member in a binary system Mm -hmm. that's died as a supernova, made a black hole, and is then still there interacting with the living companion. And material dragging off of the companion onto the black hole or into the black hole can wind up giving you this really distinctive signal of X-ray emission. And studying these is fascinating because we learn a lot about black holes, we learn a lot about stellar death, and about how binary systems interact. What's the most massive star we know of? Oh, good question. Um, I believe that we argue about this a bit. Um, (laughs) Because trying to measure the mass of a star is hard. We can't just drop one on a scale. Um, We have to base it on things like how bright it is and how far away it is, Mm -hmm. and then a best guess. And even measuring a distance is very hard. If we're very lucky and the star is in a binary system, we can use things like Kepler's laws to figure out exactly what mass the two stars in the binary have. But even that is harder than it sounds. So we think the most massive stars were around 100-ish times the mass of our sun, but that's a very big-ish. People have, I think, claimed that they found stars that are 150 solar masses or 300 solar masses. And theoretical astrophysicists will imagine what it's like if a star is a million solar masses. But it's a really active and interesting question. It's just a hard number to measure. How does a star get to be that massive? Is it something to do with the density of the cloud that's formed? Why does one star system have a mass of one solar mass and one has 10? That's another great question. And we don't yet know exactly why one star would have a very different mass than another. We just know a little bit about the rules that dictate how massive stars are. Stars are formed by condensing out of big clouds of molecular gas and dust. And we know that there's some rhyme or reason to how the different clumps inside that cloud will condense. We know that massive stars are much rarer than stars like our sun. But exactly what dictates why a star is going to be 100 solar masses versus 50 solar masses just has to do with that little local piece of the cloud that starts to condense and self-gravitate and collapse. And we know that stars that massive are rarer, but exactly what dictates how rare they are and how many we make is still something of a mystery. Yeah, you could spend a long time researching that, I think. 
Oh, it's some people's entire careers are spent studying yeah. exactly how star like, stars like these are born. I watched part of your Perimeter Institute presentation, uh, and you talked about some of the most puzzling and bizarre objects known by astronomers. Can yes, the weirdest in stars that? in the universe. Yeah, fill <laughs> Sorry? Me in on that. Besides the exciting binaries. Oh, I think my favorite weirdest stars in the universe are something called Thorn Zhitkov objects. Say so, that again slowly. Thorn Zhitkov objects. Oh, okay. is that after Kip Thorn? Yep, it's actually named after Kip Thorne and Anna Zhitkov. So they were the two astronomers who came up with the idea of these stars back in the 1970s. So we've been talking about stars that support themselves by having cores that fuse hydrogen or helium or something like that. And what Kip and Anna were theorizing was that a star could happily exist and support itself against gravitational collapse by having a core that doesn't fuse, but by having a core that's supported by principles of quantum physics. I mentioned neutron stars before, and these stars are actually held up against gravitational collapse by something called neutron degeneracy pressure. And it's a long term for if we squeeze neutrons very close together, they don't like being squeezed and they will exert a pressure that avoids them being further crushed together. The um, Pauli exclusion principle, if um, if your readers are familiar with some of this theory. But what Kip and Anna imagined was a star that could outward look exactly like, as it happens, a red supergiant, but have a neutron star for a core. And they imagined that a star like this would form from a binary where two stars merge or something like that. And what they hadn't figured out for a long time was how to find one. Because once you bury a neutron star inside an enormous massive star, it's almost impossible to tell that it's there. And what other researchers finally figured out was that you could tell the neutron star was in there because it would do weird things to the star's chemistry. And this was some of the research that I did while I was at the University of Colorado as my colleagues and I went searching for Thorne-Zhitkov objects. We honestly weren't sure we'd find any. We just thought we would get a head start on kind of a chemical survey of normal red supergiants to kind of figure out what quirks to look for. And to our great surprise, we found a star that perfectly fit the predicted chemical profile of what a Thorne-Zhitkov object should be. That's the exciting thing about astronomy. You sit down with pencil and paper and you theorize about something. This could happen. And then you find a big enough telescope and sufficiently advanced optical techniques or detector techniques, and you find one. That's got to be one of the most thrilling, exciting experiences known. It's one of my favorite things about science. Um, I think it's an Isaac Asimov quote that the most exciting sound in research isn't eureka. It's, well, that's strange. (laughs) And that was exactly what we said when we first looked at this star. And what I love about it is there's still a lot about our might be a thorn jitgob object that we don't understand. And it's now prompted other people to study it. Some people agree with us that it's a thorn jitgob object. Others think it might be something else. But what we all agree on is, hmm, that's strange. And this star, we think, is the first candidate for finding this new model of how stars work. But even if it turns out to be something else, it's given us this wonderful mystery to solve. Are there any other bizarre objects you want to talk about before we move on? Um, Oh, I could give you a list all day. Um, I think that my other favorite type of star that I've been working on a bit lately are stars called luminous blue variables. 
And they're terribly named because they're not always very luminous. They're not always blue. (laughs) And I guess sometimes they're variable. But these are very massive, so 40, 50 times the mass of our sun, stars that will periodically undergo weird instabilities in their outer layers. We think that they puff off mass or let mass kind of erupt from their outer layers, and we really don't understand why. And because this is happening in the outer layers of these stars, they can take on a variety of appearances. They might look very hot or very cold, depending on when you study them. They might be very dusty or not very dusty. Some of them we think have binary companions, but we can't tell for all of them. And they're this odd grab bag of different observable properties that we're trying to tie up into this one model based on how we know how these stars evolve. So I have other research students working with me on studying, say, the mass that these stars shed or what their surrounding environments look like and what that can tell us about them. But they're another great example of just very puzzling stars that a lot of us are very curious about. Before we run out of time, I want to ask you about Betelgeuse. Yes. Betelgeuse is a bright reddish star in the constellation Orion. And something interesting has been happening lately that's caught astronomers' attention. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, so Betelgeuse is a red supergiant. It's a great example of the stars we've been talking about. And last fall to winter, around October or November of 2019, Betelgeuse started getting dimmer. Now, that on its own wasn't anything that out of the ordinary, because we know that Betelgeuse will brighten and dim fairly regularly, and we've been watching it do that for years and years. But Betelgeuse got extremely dim last winter, to the point where some of my colleagues started writing articles or sort of alerts saying, look, Betelgeuse has never gotten this dim before. We don't understand exactly what's happening. Someone should really keep an eye on this star. And we think now that what we were seeing was the result of Betelgeuse having one of these sort of little eruptions on its surface and shedding some mass from its outer layers that then cooled off and condensed into dust. And I say dust, you hear it a lot about space dust. And it's not entirely unrelated to the kind of dust that most listeners are probably familiar with. If you have dust on your windows, it makes it harder to see through them. And this dust that had condensed because Betelgeuse had shed some mass was now blocking our view and making the star appear dimmer. So we're still trying to study exactly what happened. Um, Betelgeuse got dim. It reached a its dimmest point around February and then got bright again. Right now, we can't observe Betelgeuse at night because it's up during the day, but some space observations have suggested that it might be dimming again. So we really don't quite know what to expect once we kind of get a chance to point our telescopes back at it again. But it's a great nearby supergiant. It's only 642 light years away, which is our backyard in a cosmic perspective. And it gives us a great up-close view at how red supergiants behave, how stars like this make dust, and how we can explain these sorts of weird changes. Now, you've been very conservative. I've read some articles that suggested that this dimming is a precursor to Betelgeuse going supernova. Is there any credibility there? So, unfortunately, this is a very... Key distinction. We don't have any reason to think that Betelgeuse getting dramatically dimmer means it's about to go supernova, but that doesn't mean that it won't. We don't know what a star does in the final days or final months before it goes supernova because we've almost never gotten to observe stars like this in the lead up to their explosion. For the most part, we discover a supernova when the supernova happens, and then if we're very lucky, we can look back into old Hubble photographs and spot 
a star sitting where the supernova occurred and say, oh, that must have been the star that it came from. But those observations are typically from years prior. So we don't know what the final death throes of a star looks like. We don't think that it should look like this sort of sudden dimming, but we're also not certain. So the way that I see it is we have no particular reason to look at this behavior and say, ah, that means Betelgeuse is about to go supernova, but we don't know it doesn't. So I'm always happy to hear that Betelgeuse is still there, still around, hasn't hasn't gone supernova yet, but it's most likely that the behavior we're seeing now isn't a harbinger of Betelgeuse suddenly dying. It's more likely just a nice clue as to another piece of how Betelgeuse evolves and how stars like this work. You mentioned that, relatively speaking, it's in our backyard, 642 light years away. Suppose Betelgeuse did go supernova. Would there be any threat to the Earth? There would be no threat to the Earth whatsoever. We'd be completely safe if Betelgeuse died as a supernova. We would see a pretty great light show in the sky, though. Right now, Betelgeuse is up during the day, so if it went supernova this afternoon, we would be able to see a what looked like a very bright daytime star. We know this from historical records of past nearby supernovae, that it would be visible in the daytime sky. If this happened this coming winter when Betelgeuse was up at night, it would be by far the brightest thing in the sky. I've seen calculations saying it would be comparable in brightness to the full moon. You could potentially be able to read by that light. So it would look spectacular. It would probably be really startling to people to suddenly see that in the sky, but our safety wouldn't be a concern at all. So I have a jackpot question for you, just for fun. Yes. Do we know of any supernova candidates that are close enough to possibly be dangerous? No. Our closest supernova candidates are stars like Betelgeuse or Antares, I believe, is another good example, and it's a red supergiant like Betelgeuse, but these are all far away enough that they wouldn't pose any threat to us. There is a somewhat infamous star, um, another massive star, one of those Wolf Rayet stars that I talked about, that has gotten a lot of attention because we can tell how this star is spinning, and it looks like the poles of the star, so the north or south poles, are pointed almost directly at us. And those gamma ray bursts that I talked about before, those flashes of gamma rays that some stars can emit when they die as supernovae, tend to move along stars' poles. So some people have looked at this star and said, well, it looks like a loaded gun aimed at us because if it shot out gamma rays, they'd be heading directly our way. And depending on how strong the gamma ray burst was and how close the star was, we could potentially see some effects here on Earth. But one, this all travels at the speed of light, so we would have no warning, so it's not worth worrying about. And two, we think this is extremely unlikely. Um, Like I said, we don't really know what the final death throes of a star look like. We're not able to predict how long it will be before one dies. But for most of these stars, even if they are, quote, about to die, that still means tens or hundreds of thousands of years. So very, very far in the future. Okay, so we're starting to run out of time a little bit. I want to ask you about your new book, your new popular science book called The Last Stargazers. Tell me about that. Why did you write it and what's it all about? Yeah, The Last Stargazers is basically a behind-the-scenes tour of what life is like as a professional astronomer. So I really wanted to give people this window into what our jobs are like. Professional astronomers are pretty rare. There's seven and a half billion people on the planet, and only about 50,000 of us are astronomers, and our jobs are really unusual. Everybody kind of loves the science and beauty of space and the romance of studying the universe, but how we study the 
the universe is really quirky. We go to the most remote corners of the planet. We wind up on mountaintops sharing the mountain with, you know, bears or tarantulas or riding out earthquakes or volcanoes to operate telescopes and, and get very the data. Thin air sometimes. And, and very thin air, very high altitudes. So it's a surprise to people that scientists who you tend to picture as, you know, wearing white lab coats and hunkered down in a lab can sometimes actually be closer to the Indiana Jones stereotype and going on these wild adventures. So I wrote The Last Stargazers to kind of capture those stories and adventures and to look at what professional stargazing is like and how technology is also changing the way we do our jobs. Do you take us on a tour of the big optical telescopes? I do. So some of the best optical telescopes in the world are in Arizona, in Hawaii, in Chile. I spend a lot of my research time in Chile, and I did most of my um, PhD thesis at the University of Hawaii. So we get to take a wonderful tour of all these telescopes. Um, at some point in the book, I take us on a ride aboard a telescope that actually operates out the open back door of a 747. Oh, Sophia. And we, we, yes, and we fly into the stratosphere on this telescope. So it's really incredible incredible where we get to go. I had a friend a few years ago who flew on that aircraft. Oh, did, they must have had a wonderful time, I hope. Oh, yeah, she told me great stories. Yeah, it was wonderful. So oh, what happening. is the largest optical telescope now? The largest optical telescope right now is technically a telescope in the Canary Islands I um, called SALT, the South African Large Telescope. Its mirror is just a little over 10 meters from end to end, so maybe 10.4 meters. And it just edges out the pair of Keck telescopes on the summit of Mauna Kea and Hawaii. Each of those is about 10.1 meters across. Do we have any so, telescopes planned that are bigger than 10 meters? We do. There's actually a whole new generation of telescopes that are hopefully coming online in the coming decade that are very creatively named the extremely large telescopes. So these telescopes should have mirrors that are 25, 30, almost 40 meters from end to end. And that's a stunning increase over the 10 meter telescopes we have now. How do we deal with the gravitational effects of warping the surface? Oh, it's a good question. We will. So these telescopes are very carefully supported from the back because you imagine if you just take a big giant um, mirror and support it by its edges, it'll sag. Um, and this is one of the great benefits of using mirrors instead of lenses is since the mirror isn't see-through, you can shore it up in the back with all sorts of support structures and all sorts of, in some cases, pretty technologically complex and dynamic tools that keep the mirror supported, maintain the mirror's shape exactly. All of these telescopes that are this large, too, are actually made of multiple mirrors. Um, one great example is the giant Magellan Telescope, which is going to be built in Chile, with a mirror that in total is 25 meters across, but it's actually made of, I think, six or seven, I'm not remembering the number off the top of my head, but six or seven eight-meter mirrors that are all working in concert. So that's another way to help keep the weight down a little bit. So it's really impossible, as I recall, to look through these telescopes optically, like sitting in the perch at Palomar. These yes. Are, these are all detector-driven telescopes, right? Yep. All the astronomy we do today, or all the astronomical research, is done by putting digital cameras where the eyepieces used to be. Yeah. I think I remember being at a conference where somebody was wondering if we were even going to make an eyepiece for something like the Giant Magellan Telescope, mm -hmm. although I think everyone recognizes that it would be really cool to just have one for fun, just yeah, to be able to look through night. a telescope I'm, at yeah, I'm visitor night. <laughs> I know. But even a visitor night, I mean, these telescopes are pretty arduous to get to. This isn't, you know, yeah. a day trip 
outside of town. But um, that's why Kit Peak is so nice. Yeah. I've had a tour of oh. Kit Peak. Kit Peak yeah, is the very the first. And the, and the, uh, yep. What is it? That's the, the wind, very first place wind. that I observed. Yep. And the opening of The Last Stargazers talks about me going on my first observing run to Kit Peak. And that was part of what gave me the idea for the book because I remember sitting down at dinner that first night and being introduced as, oh, Emily's about to go on her first observing run. And then having all the other astronomers at the table start telling me stories and saying, oh, you know, careful while you're observing. We had a woman had a, who had a scorpion crawl up her pant leg and sting her. Or, oh, you know, I talked to somebody who was once sitting in the mail, that big four meter telescope on Kitt Peak, when lightning struck the dome and it was the loudest sound he'd ever heard in his life. Or mm. I know somebody that was at the telescope that got shot and I'm sitting there going, the telescope that got shot, that can't possibly be true. And it is. And the story's told in my book, but they were using the storytelling as a way to kind of give me a glimpse of what my job was going to be like and the sort of experiences we all shared. So that was a wonderful introduction at Kit Peak to the job that I was about to start doing. I want to finish the show with one of your side interests. Mm-hmm. Spiders. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about that. So, um, a couple of my colleagues and I got, I think the term is internet famous a couple of years ago for bothering spiders with laser pointers. But what had happened was we had a minor spider infestation in our offices and the infestation was of a jumping spider. So we think of spiders as the things that make webs and jumping spiders don't build webs. They actually hunt their prey visually, which means they have pretty good eyesight. And it meant that Someone told us these spiders would chase laser pointers. And I had two laser pointers in my office. I had the red one. I know, they're like cats. And I had a red laser pointer that I would use for teaching lectures. I also had a green laser pointer that some astronomers will use to help point things out in the sky, although I want to make very clear that those need to be used very carefully because they can pose a safety risk if not used properly. But I I had a red and a green one in my office, and I thought, well, this, to me, it was the obvious question to ask. I had a red laser pointer, a green laser pointer, and a laser pointer chasing spider. And I decided to find out which color the spider would like better. And I shot two videos of the same spider chasing (laughs) a laser pointer. And I don't know, the internet found it. Um, We started contacting um, spider researchers saying, can you explain why it liked the green one better than the red one? And (laughs) they're getting into the physics of how spider eyes are built. Someone else is calculating, well, if their visual acuity is that good, could a spider be able, can a spider see the moon? And somebody's doing the math on like the back of a napkin. And (laughs) to me, it was a wonderful example of using Twitter for good because astronomers Astronomers and spider scientists found one another, geeked out gloriously. We wound up having one of the spider specialists come to give a speech in our astronomy department talking oh, wow. about the optics of spider eyes, which are surprisingly similar to telescopes. But it just became this wonderful little side cork. And now whenever we find a spider in our house, instead of, you know, trapping it in a jar, I keep wondering if I can, you know, lead it somewhere with a laser pointer. <laughs> what a cool story. That's fantastic. Well, we've come to the end of the show, just in time. I want to thank you for a great tour and and telling us all about Massive Stars and your new book, The Last Stargazers. Excellent. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they have a question. If you want some content on massive stars and the occasional spider, you can follow me on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is EMS. Q-U-E. It's like the beginning of my first name and the end of my last name. And if you're interested in more about the sort of stories and adventures of professional astronomy, you should check out my book, The Last Stargazers. And you could read more about the book itself at thelaststargazers.com. 
Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. All right. You've been listening, folks. You've been listening to astronomy professor Dr. Emily Levesque and John Marchalero on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week. Thank you.